live from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful raining California. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone this afternoon. I'm Rob Starr, along with my best friends going, Mr. Chris Davies and Miss Iggy Visconer. And tonight is our agriculture show that we do once a month, and we're very happy to do that. Ingi and Chris, welcome, and I guess I should say happy Valentine's Day. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Rob and Chris. And is uh, Chris Austin on the line as well with us? No, she. Uh, just, I was. that's why I was a little late in the intro, because uh, she was just sending me a text saying she can't make it on the show tonight, uh, which is okay. okay. Chris D- Davies is calling from, are you home, Chris, or are you? I'm at, here, man. Uh, happy Valentine's to you, to Inky, and to all our listeners. Great. Hey, you didn't send me flowers. <laughs> but I did. I bought you a bag of, bag of potato chips. Oh, okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I am celebrating Valentine's Day up at the world famous uh, World Ag Expo in Tulare, California, oh, the biggest yeah, farm show awesome. on earth. It, it happens to be in my hometown. So we've had a lot of rain. There was a lot of wind this afternoon and a lot of equipment and a lot of irrigation technology, which is pretty cool. So oh, um, we're pretty pretty excited about that good 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 so um i know we're you were up at the uh california irrigation institute uh symposium conference and uh, we have some interviews that we 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 caught on with and uh you want to kind of just prep everybody for what that is and it's mr udall yes um yeah we are we are just off the heels of the annual california irrigation institute conference which our listeners will probably recognize and know a little bit about because we usually preview it on a show prior to the conference. And uh, tonight we're going to air the actual uh, luncheon speech by uh, Colorado State University senior policy scientist um, Brad Udall. And it was really, really a great speech. And even though you won't be able, the listeners won't be able to see the accompanying PowerPoint slides, thankfully our Maven's Notebook Chris Austin recorded the speech as well as captured the slides. And if you go to Maven's notebook, you can actually read the presentation as well. So we really, really thank Chris for covering the conference as she does so many other absolutely California water events. And we all know she used to be a recording engineer. I know. So, so, I was going to try to record it with my iPhone, and she goes, Ingie, look at over in the corner. And she's got all this, all this radio gear. You know, I go, do you? Do you like pack that up and bring it everywhere with you? And she does. She has a suitcase just for the radio recording gear, and it's like you rock. That's woman, a woman. Of, that's a woman of my own heart. I love that. Yeah. When yeah, first time, first first time when we went out uh, after the show one night, we went to dinner, and um, we were talking about backgrounds, and she started telling me, yeah, she used to work in a recording studio and did all this stuff. And I'm going, wow, I can talk to you about microphones. I can talk to you about EQs and, and limiters and stuff. And we we just had a blast. It was great. Yeah, she's 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 just wonderful. So glad that she was able to do that. And um, so our audience actually gets to listen to the speech tonight, but you can also look at the PowerPoints and read it um, online. So um, without further ado, it, it was it was really compelling. I think it was about a, a forty-five minute presentation. He has a lot of data, a lot of hardcore data, 
on how the climate is changing and has some really, really nice suggestions on what we can do about it as well. So it's uplifting. It's not doom and gloom, you know, all that kind oh, of that's, stuff. That's I like good. it. Well, in, in contrast to me going to dinner with her, when I go to dinner with Chris, we talk about large-scale rotors yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and all these hydraulic things. <laughs> but it's just fun. Chris, actually, I, I, I really enjoy – discussions with both Ewingy and Chris on the technical side. And it, it just, I don't know, I get excited talking tech stuff. And, and you guys yeah. are, are some of the brightest people I know in the industry. And I'm very proud of both Aww. of you. I'm very happy to work with both of you. So, Aww, Well, likewise. Likewise. Awesome. Thanks. To both of you. Well, we, yeah. we appreciate that. You too, Ingy. We're all, we're all water geeks. We, uh, we know that, you know, water, life is nothing without water and water is life. So we need to know something about it. And that's where... That's what the show is all about, right? That's yes, we are. Some of this knowledge to the rest of the people. All right. Well, we're going to uh, take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be back, and we'll go right into the interview. And uh, then we'll probably have a, a minute or two after that to say hi to everybody or goodbye. So uh, anyway, stand by. We'll be right back. such a refreshing topic. As more and more markets face water restrictions, your customers may be hungry or, should I say, thirst lighting heads or heads with check valves. They all provide easy ways to differentiate your bids and win more jobs. Or for an extra stream of revenue, offer existing customers upgrades like high-efficiency nozzles, rotary nozzles, or Wi-Fi-based controllers. Because when you help your customers save water, you make a world of difference for the Earth and your bottom line at the same time. We'll drink to that. Water Zone here, and uh, this was the uh, California Irrigation Institute, and a lady named Mary Ann Dickinson uh, is going to do the introduction of Mr. Udall. So here we go. My name is Mary Ann Dickinson. I am a director on the board of the California Irrigation Institute, and I have the distinct pleasure uh, today to introduce our luncheon keynote speaker, uh, Brad Udall. Our speaker has an extensive background in water and climate policy issues. He has been director of the Western Water Assessment at the University of Colorado, the first director of the Getchies Wilkinson Center for Natural Resources, Energy, and the Environment at the University of Colorado, and he now serves currently as the first senior water and climate research scientist scholar at the Colorado Water Institute at Colorado State University. Brad has an engineering degree from Stanford, so yay California, and an MBA from Colorado State University. Expert in hydrology and related policy issues, Brad has written extensively on the impacts of climate change on water resources in the American West. He has provided congressional testimony, provided input to several National Academy of Science panels, and has given hundreds of talks on climate change impacts. His work has also been well recognized. Our own California Department of Water Resources awarded him its Climate Science Service Award for his work in facilitating interactions between water managers and scientists. The Department of Interior bestowed the Partner in Conservation Award on the Western Water Assessment for his work on the groundbreaking 2007 Environmental Impact Statement on Colorado River Shortages and Coordinated Reservoir Operations. 
He has dedicated his life to the pursuit of sustainable water science and policy, particularly in the American West. His commitment to wise and efficient water use and his intelligent and remarkably cogent writing on the subject have been a major contribution to water resources management. And an interesting tidbit about him that we learned today at lunch is that he has guided 45 trips down the Colorado River. He was a guide during his college years, but 45 trips, aren't we all jealous? It just sounds like so much fun. So it is my distinct honor and privilege to introduce to you Brad Udall. Great. Thanks, Marianne. I owe you big money for that. That was a lovely introduction. Uh, my wife <clears throat> tells me that of my senior water and climate research scientist and scholar title, actually only three words are true. She says, for sure, I work on water and I work on climate and I'm really senior. Forget anything else in there. So Marianne gave me this topic and I actually liked it. So the topic of this talk is, is the Colorado River in crisis? And there you can see Lake Mead, that white band that's a, almost 150 feet tall, represents 15 million acre feet of water, an entire year's amount. Um, and in the year 2000, I think most people in this room know that reservoir was absolutely full. full. And I'll also note before I start that your problems in California, right, are inherently joined to the Colorado River. I have no idea, well, I have some idea where some of you are from, but it might be easy to think if you were from Northern California that this river had nothing to do with you. And I would argue that's absolutely not true. And part of it's because of Metropolitan Water District right here, right? They have, I think, the largest reach of any water system in the world. Um, to their credit, actually, if you're going to get water to 20 plus million people, you want that reach. And as I am told, this river here got them through the recent drought, which is a good thing because they would have gone looking in California for water, right, if this river hadn't had it for them. So crisis, what's the definition? A time of intense difficulty, trouble or danger or a time when a difficult or important decision must be made. My question to you is, how, I'm going to give you three options. Yes, it is in crisis. No, it's not. And the third one is, I don't know, I don't care, I'm texting, don't bother. <laughs> so yes, in crisis. No, not in crisis. And the third option, I don't know, I don't care, I'm on social media. There we go. <laughs> You'll get my answer at the end. This is my T-shirt, actually. Mike Dettinger, I don't know how many of you know him. He actually made these. And you can put climate change in five quick points. It's warming. There's no doubt about it. I mean, the Earth's almost a degree Celsius warmer than it was pre-industrial. It's everywhere. It's us. There's no credible alternative explanation for what we're seeing. Experts agree. Listen, this is 200 years of science at work. And uh, there's not a credible person out there that says, we don't know what's going on. It's bad and we can fix it. So I'm gonna talk current basin status, the hydrology, reservoir levels, shortage risk, current rules. I'm gonna talk a lot about climate change just because it's near and dear to my heart in research. I'm gonna talk worldwide all the way down to the basin and this concept of aridification. 
I'm going to talk about the drought contingency plan, what has been and hopefully will be accomplished. I'll look at the 2020 to 2026 renegotiations of the 2007 interim guidelines and what the path forward might be there. And then finally, I'll have some closing thoughts for you. I think everybody in the room knows this slide, but let me just get us all on the same page. So seven states, two nations in the basin. It's 8% of the area of the lower 48. It's the size of the Hudson. It's not a very big river, right? Um, annual flow is about 14.75 million acre feet, and that's down from what many people think the flow is. That's at least Ferry, and, and the reason it's down is because of this drought. And this is the worst drought in the gauge record, almost down 20%, um, 12.3 million acre feet per year. 40 million people depend on it. Every major city in the Southwest, including Salt Lake City, Denver, Colorado Springs, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Las Vegas, of course, gets 90% of its water in it, and in the LA basin in San Diego, not to mention Phoenix and Tucson. Um, four and a half million irrigated acres, fully allocated in 1922. In 2000, our supplies equal demand for the first time. Believe it or not, people still want to take more water out of this river. There are two big projects in the upper basin people are talking about. It no longer reaches the ocean and hasn't since roughly about 2000. And then I'll also mention, but not shown on this slide, is that in 2007, for the first time, we agreed on what we would do in a shortage. And that came about because in 2005, the reservoirs had lost about half their contents. And Secretary Gail Norton said to all the basin states, either you fix this or we will. You come up with a plan or interior, the feds will. And to their credit, the basin states in two, three very short years came up with what are called the 2007 interim guidelines. And I'll talk about those more. So this slide shows the total storage in Lake Mead and Lake Powell in those dark blue bars and the percent capacity. And then what's called unregulated inflow into Lake Powell. And the unregulated inflow is the line down there in the lower part. So in 1999, the reservoirs were at 95%. At the end of 2018, they're at 42% right there. And in the unregulated hydrology, which is the amount of water that would flow into Powell absent upper basin diversion, so it includes the diversions, but not the reservoirs above Powell. And what you see in that is this unprecedented hydrology in the gauge record, the second, third, fourth, fifth lowest years on record. And out of those 19 years, only four years were above average, about half what you would expect in that kind of period. This, I made this image um, back in December. So on the vertical axis is winter precip in inches, which predominantly determines how much water is in the system. And on this horizontal axis is the summer temperature in Fahrenheit, which is also an important determinant of how much water flows. Each dot represents a year, and the size of the dot is the value of that flow. So five million acre feet is a little tiny dot, and 20 million acre feet or more is a big one. And there's also a solid line that gives you the average, about 15, to give you a, a sense. So this is from 1950 to 2018. All the years post 2000 are in red. And all the years 1999 and earlier are in blue. There are 50 of those. And then again, the size of the dot is proportionally annual flow. 
So what do you see here? There are four quadrants. Upper left is cool and wet, upper right hot and wet, lower right hot and dry, and lower left cool and dry. Since 2000, there are only two red dots in that upper left quadrant, 2011 and 2008. Only six years greater than average winter precip. So take the red horizontal line and count the dots above it, only six red dots. 13 years sit in that lower hot and dry quadrant, two thirds. And again, as I previously mentioned, only four of those are greater than average. That gives you a sense of what we've endured here. What about the risk of shortage in this basin? It's never had a shortage. This was released by reclamation in August of last year. And if you see those red circles going out five years in that shortage condition, any amount Lake Mead less than 1075, the first shortage trigger, 70% chance of any kind of shortage and 14% chance that Mead during that five year period sits below 1025. Mead at 1025 is a little more than 6 million acre feet. As Jim Lockhead in Colorado says, the water is circling the drain at that point. And you do not, as a water manager, want to see the reservoir at that level. Yet here, according to Reclamation, using hydrology that actually goes back to 1906 and arguably should not be used because it contains very large years, the likes of which we will probably not see or at least not a long sequence of them going forward. So last year is the fourth warmest year on record. And you can see going back to 1850, uh, uh, this graph shows temperatures, right? And here's a little piece in Nature in December of last year by three well, very well-known scientists, including two of them from UCSD. And they talk about how warming may in fact speed up, that three things are going on. One. Global emissions of greenhouse gases, contrary to our great hopes and expectations, have not leveled off. They went up last year. U.S. emissions went up last year. Two, dirty air actually masks warming. It may mask up to half of what we're seeing. And guess what? We are doing a great job around the planet of cleaning up dirty air. I wish we were doing as good a job as reducing emissions. As we clean the air, you'll see more warming. And then finally, two big oceanic circulation patterns, one in the Atlantic and one in the Pacific, look like they're shifting into patterns where instead of stashing heat in the bottom of the ocean, it's going to remain on the surface and, and affect our air temperatures. So here's the Southwest 2018. Those darkest reds are record driest, centered over the four corners. And you can see much below normal is that dark yellow. Uh, it gets into large parts of California, right? So lowest precipitation on record in the Four Corners area. And what about temperatures? Warmest temperatures on record in five states there. Uh, even portions of Wyoming, a sixth state. My state, New Mexico, Arizona, and portions of California and Nevada. Anybody aware of this report that came out last year in October? This IPCC intergovernmental panel on 1.5 warming. So. Governments of the world ask scientists to tell them, what's the difference between 1.5 Celsius and 2 Celsius? You might think that, hey, it's only a half a degree Celsius, a degree Fahrenheit, no big deal. But this report came out and it said, well, it's been about 0.8 C already. 1.5 is damaging. 2 could uh, approach intolerable. The current promises in place out of the Paris Agreement in 2015 
would get us to 3.5 Celsius. So that's not even on the map, right, of where we need to be. To avoid 1.5 C, we need unprecedented actions by 2030, actually. Uh, we don't have the 2030 to start. They actually need to start now if you want to avoid 1.5 C. And there's no historical analog. I mean, pick whatever World War II re, re program, revamping program, re-upping program. None of them come close to what we need to do to avoid 1.5. And here are my two takeaways on this. So first is every 0.1 Celsius is important. There's no cliff beyond which it's too late to act. Sometimes you hear people say, oh, you know, we haven't done anything. Let's give up. Uh, it's too late. And that's not true. And then takeaway two is something I've been saying for a while. The real game in town is to get greenhouse gas emissions to zero as soon as we can. To the extent we can't do that, we're going to have to do negative emissions. Hence my two points here. So we really need to focus on greenhouse gas emissions and less on temperatures. And finally, we need to get to net zero emissions as soon as possible. And at some point in time, around the world, we're going to wake up and go, we need to do negative emissions. And agriculture will actually have a good big role there once we decide to do that. This document came out about a month later. I was one of the authors of it, 400 scientists, 29 chapters, three years. That's a fire actually in Glacier National Park in late 2018 that shut the park down. There are four major findings. We're already feeling climate change. This isn't somewhere else out there. I'll mention Hurricane Harvey, 60 inches of rain, 60 inches in four days, single highest precipitation total in the lower 48 ever. Scientists tell us that was juiced by about 40% by climate change. And I won't talk about hurricanes or droughts or fires. Well, I will get the fires later in this state. Anybody in this room affected by the Paradise Fire, campfire? One hand goes up here. Worst fire in U.S. history, $16 billion in damage, 20,000 structures destroyed, 86 lives. Every one of those statistics is off the chart. Future impacts will be disruptive. Without mitigation, i.e. greenhouse gas reduction and adaptation, we're going to get growing losses. And every one of these assessments, water is like the third or fourth point, and I just picked one of them. I mean, we're seeing quality and quantity change uh, within the U.S. And you within this room all know it for sure. So let me shift now from the sort of global and national to the basin scale. <clears throat> this paper came out in, in 2016 uh, by the tree ring scientist Connie Woodhouse and company called Increasing Influence of Air Temperature on Upper Colorado River Stream Flow. And what Connie did in this paper was look using data back to 1900, and she mapped water year flow and October to April precipitation and normalized them so that you can put them on the same axis. And you would think these two lines would sit on top of each other, but they're normally, but there are places where the water year flow is higher than the precipitation, meaning the efficiency that year was really good. You got good runoff despite precipitation that said you wouldn't get that much. The inverse also happens, where you get less flow than you would expect given the precipitation. And so she has marked areas where the efficiency is high in those green and blue bars, and where the efficiency is low in the red and pink bars. 
And if you look, what side of that graph is overwhelmingly pink and rose-colored? It's the right side. It's from 2000 or even 1988 roughly onward, right? Telling you that something is going on there. And so what Connie said in this paper is normally we think precipitation's a flow driver, right? It's what causes droughts. But temperature can also be important. She said since 1988, flows have been less than expected given winter precipitation and that warm temperatures exacerbated modest precipitation deficits in what many of us now call the millennium drought that started in 2000. So the next year, uh, Jonathan Overpeck and I came out with this paper called The 21st Century Colorado River Hot Drought and Implications for the Future. And this image here shows the decline in Colorado flows since 1906 in the top. It shows Colorado River Basin temperatures increasing since 1895. And in the bottom, it shows Colorado River Basin precipitation basically flat since 1895. And we called two things here, a dry drought in the 1950s that was precipitation dominated, and then this hot drought in the 2000s. And much like Connie, we said that precipitation declines can only partially explain this flow loss about two-thirds of the loss in river flow, um, it was due to the decline in precipitation. And the total loss is, again, about 20% in this 2000s drought. Temperature increases explain the remainder, hence the hot drought. And that's about a third of the loss. And why? Just more evaporation. Any given day is hotter. The growing season is longer. You have more opportunity for snow to sublimate in the wintertime because of higher temperatures. And finally, you have this notion of an atmosphere that wants to hold more moisture and hence is thirstier. And so we said right now it's about 6%. Uh, so if, if the loss in the river flow is about 20%, 6% is about a third of that. But if you flash forward to 2050 with the temperature projections, you lose about 20% due to temperature. And by 2100, about 35%. This paper came out just last year with um, a UCLA scientist, Dennis Lettenmeyer, his student, Mu Xiao, and I'm a co-author on it. And it's called on, on the Causes of Declining Colorado River Stream Flows. And here we ran a model. And the great thing about a model is you can run experiments on it. So what we said is since about 1915, because that's where our data end or started, there's about a, almost 17% decline. And then we ran a model and calibrated it. And in that model, we ran it twice, one with the temperatures we've had, and then one with flat temperatures, which is called a D-trend experiment. And then we looked at the 1950s and the 2000s drought analysis, much like Overpeck and I did. Here's what we found. 50% of that decline is due to higher temperatures, 50% using this model. And 50% of the decline was due to changing precipitation patterns. And what happened here is if you look at that image of the upper Colorado River Basin, the areas in green and blue, those are percentage amounts of annual flow coming out of those areas. The dark blue one, 22%, that's the Colorado headwaters that goes all the way up into Rocky Mountain National Park. What happened is precipitation moved from those green and blue areas over into the deserts of Utah, which are much less efficient at generating runoff. 
Or what about mega drought? So this is a 2016 study that looked at the potential to have mega drought. And in the left image there, you see from 1950 to 2000, using three different metrics, which I won't describe, hence the three bars, you had about a maximum 10% chance of mega drought, a drought of multi-decadal length, typically 10, 20, often 20 or more years. Here in this paper, it was 35 or more years. Look at the end of century 2050 to 2099 metrics there, almost 90% chance of a multi-decadal mega drought in the American Southwest because of the warming. This paper actually carried that further. It's most of the same authors. And on the bottom, you see the change in temperature. And on the uh, vertical axis, you see mega drought. So 0.6 is 60% chance, for example. And then you see these vertical lines in there, one called RCP 2.6. That's one of the climate model outputs. That's the lowest of greenhouse gas emission scenarios that scientists think we could possibly be on in the 21st century. The warming associated with that, you can see, is about 2 Celsius. And then if you follow that RCP median line up, it crosses at about 0.6, indicating about a 60% chance of a multi-decadal drought. And then if you go over to the RCP 8.5, the path we're on, although hopefully we'll get off of it, you see over 90% chance. This image also in those colors shows what happens if precipitation changes. The results I just gave you were for no change in precip, um, that delta P equals zero line there. So what happens if precipitation goes up by 10% or precipitation up by 20%? Again, by conventional 20th century thinking, you would think no drought, right? How can you have a drought when precipitation is going up? Yet if you do the math here and look at this, you have a 70% chance of a mega drought with a 10% chance, with a 10% increase in precip, or even a 35% chance of a mega drought if precip goes up by 20%. So the lesson here, again, is precip is not everything in this century because of these extreme temperatures. Aridification is a concept that some scientists have begun to use for the American Southwest. When you have a 20-year drought, it's hard to call it a drought, right? Drought implies a return to normal, yet this doesn't look like we're going back. Um, we have the declining snowpack, which I'll show you in a little bit. We have higher temperatures. We have drying soil. Thirsty atmosphere, I've mentioned. The whole idea that storm tracks actually move north is something scientists have found in previous warm and high, dry periods. Shorter winters and longer falls. Um, it's even possible, shockingly, to have areas green up in, in this because of carbon fertilization and actually take get more water out of the system. This image is from a paper that uh, a Columbia scientist, Richard Seeger, did that showed how the 100th meridian, right, the classic line that John Wesley Powell talked about that was sort of the, separated the, the wet east from the dry west. That has now migrated about 100 miles to the east and will continue moving east. Um, and this is an index of, uh, of aridity, if you will, mid-century here. There's a bunch of other studies out there that talk about this within the basin. I'm not going to walk you through these studies. Since I put this together in October, I'll bet you I could add five more. Um, here's a, an upper images are uh, snow water equivalent trends, both model-based 
on the right and uh, station based on the left. <clears throat> and you can see those circles indicating declines in April 1 snow water equivalent almost uniformly throughout the West. And then that lower image on the right is the measurement of this thirsty atmosphere, what scientists call vapor pressure deficit, the amount of sort of moisture suck that the atmosphere wants to hold. And those red images or red points there are where it's increased the most. All right, let me move on to the DCP, the Drought Contingency Plan. Um, you know, in 2007, in the basin, we came to an agreement. I mentioned that earlier, we're gonna solve this structural deficit, the idea that the lower basin's using 1.2 million acre feet more water than to which it's entitled. And it only dealt with about 600,000 acre feet or 50% of that deficit. But since 2000, it's really been shown that that 600,000 acre fit is not gonna do it. It's not gonna help us avoid potentially catastrophic outcomes. And one realization was that you can't start shortages at 1075 in Lake Mead. It's just too low. And as I mentioned that that 600,000 acre feet's not enough. And also in that 2007 set of uh, regulations, our record of decision was this idea you'd reconsult at Lake Mead 1020. I mean, that's way too low. I mean, the horse is out of the barn at that point. And you have roughly 6 million acre feet in Mead. And just to show you the difference between 2007 and now, risk of Mead uh, less than 1025. So those sort of gray shaded area on the bottom of that graph is what we thought in 2007, the risk of 1025, less than 1025. It's about 8%, 5, 6, 8%. You can see it moving along. And there's where we are now, um, over 40%, over 40%. Here's the Central Arizona Project's water allocation, right? And this is all about cap because in 1968, when my father Morris Udall and, and my uncle Stewart and a whole bunch of other people got that cap legislation passed, they set up cap knowing full well that the structural deficit at some point would come back to haunt them. And if you don't believe me, there's a uh, Compton report in 1965 that the upper basin did that's got the structural deficit laid out right at, in, in one graph for you to look at. And we forgot about it for almost 50 years. So they knew in 68 that Central Arizona Project was living on borrowed time. And guess what? We're now getting to deal with it. <laughs> 1.5 million acre feet per year deliveries. That canal's 336 miles, 3,000 vertical feet, takes water into Tucson and Phoenix. Tucson has no surface water, zero, zip. They have a, a fair bit of groundwater, but it's not forever groundwater. There are five pools of water in CAP. Um, ag has the lowest priority. You can see it there at the top. Indians and cities have the most towards the bottom. And so what did they decide to do? So here's the 2007 Central Arizona Project cutbacks. Um, 480,000 acre feet total. I mentioned 600. The difference there is, no, I don't. The difference there is um, uh, other, uh, it's Mexico is what the difference is. So you can see the lines there. There's the 480,000 acre feet. It takes the ag pool out, right? If you're a Pinal County irrigator in Arizona, you would have no water under that. 
What did, what did we decide or what did Arizona decide to do? They added another 240,000 acre foot of reductions. And it now gets all the way down through what they call the um, NIA priority, all the way down into Indian and, and, and MNI. And that, those cuts really hurt. That's almost half of the Central Arizona Project's water supply. Here's the lake levels on the left and then the various shortages that occur. Arizona total there is circled and you can see at the very bottom below 1025 feet in Mead, you get the 720,000 acre feet of cuts. California is gonna join the party here, right? And they join at about 1045 to 1040 at 200,000 and go up to 350. And on the far right, you can see almost 1.5 million acre feet in cuts total when you include Mexico and the Fed's contribution. Where are we? There's Governor Ducey signing the Arizona legislation on January 31. Still interstate agreements. We need California to come on board here. And IID at the last minute decided they wanted $200 million to fix the Salton Sea, which is a huge issue um, and needs to get resolved. IID apparently also wants the last say on this. Um, Reclamation issued a notice in the Federal Register on February 1 uh, saying that the states, the deadline was now gonna get moved from January 31 to March 19. Um, who knows exactly where that's headed right now. There's supposed to be federal legislation, but anybody who thinks the US Congress is fully functional right now, I wanna have a little discussion with you. If it's all, if we get all of this done, we're going to have a short break before we then get to renegotiate the 2007 guidelines. And that renegotiation is supposed to start by the end of 2020. So let me just give you some thoughts on the DCP. Incredibly difficult. Um, I think it started in 2014. Some people say 2015, but it took five years. Um, again, half, almost half a CAPS water supply, they're planning to disappear. As messy as this is, I, there's no alternative to it. You just get to sit down and talk about it. I think everybody in this room understands you cannot litigate these things. Courts do not have the capability to understand this. Harder to accomplish than many thought. Um, Gila River Indian tribe critical to the success. They are bringing a lot of water to the table and they will get richly compensated, but that's what economists have told us we should do all along. The feds, Department of Water Resources, CAP, Tucson, Pinal County Irrigators, NGOs, many people contributed to this. And these 2020 renegotiations, I think, are going to be a whole lot harder. I think you're going to see a full EIS. And <clears throat> if you've been following this, those Pinal County Irrigators are actually going to go back to pumping groundwater. Well, there's no easy source of groundwater to replace uh, additional reductions that we may need in the basin. And there's desal, but it's really expensive. So I just see the 2020 renegotiation much more difficult. And just to give you an idea, so this is out of my paper with Overpeck. It's future flow loss as a function of temperature. And there's four columns here. The two left are mid-century. The two right are end-century. And I mentioned this before, 20% mid-century flow loss due to temperatures. And they're, they're the two places where that occurs on that graph. Uh, I've got three different temperature sensitivities, hence the blue, green, and red, and the 20 is in the middle, the green ones. And there's your 35% loss at end of century under high emissions. 
So what about these renegotiations? Uh, my sense is, I mean, we need to understand the worst could happen here. Hope it don't, well, it doesn't. But, you know, most of you who know a little bit about the Colorado River Compact know about the obligation by the upper basin to deliver that 75 million acre feet every 10 running years. Upper basin consumptive use right now is 4.5 million acre feet, almost half of that number. And for a long time, people have thought, well, you know, that's the lower basin savior right there, right? The, the upper basin is going to guarantee this. But if you read the compact very clearly, it, it says the upper basin shall not cause the flows to decline below 75 million acre feet. And for years, the upper basin has said, you know, if something else causes it, not our depletions, we're off the hook. And I, for a long time, didn't believe that. I, I sort of was in the camp of many legal scholars who thought that 75 million acre feet was a hard and fast number. I don't think so anymore. I actually think the upper basin has a very strong case to make if they're only using 4.5 million acre feet, that that 75 million acre foot obligation, if the river is flowing 10 or 11 or 12 million acre feet, they're not obligated to cut themselves. Um, I mean, I have now been talking about not just 12, but 11 or 10 million acre feet per year. Uh, you know, the current DCP actually allows people to bank those so-called contributions, those reductions, and get them back later. And I sometimes worry a little bit about that, if that might stress the system. You might have a wet year, like Mead goes up and everybody wants to get their water out or a couple of years. You may ultimately regret that. Um, New demands um, should not add to risk of existing demands, and this predominantly is the upper basin. And I really think we need super strict rules on new demands. Upper basin wants an insurance account in Lake Powell, much like intentionally created surplus. And one other, one other observation. Despite what the 1968 Act says, that cap, the cap canal will go to zero before California faces one drop of shortage, I do not believe it is politically feasible to cut cap to zero. Five million people in Phoenix, that's half their water supply. Tucson's about a million with no surface water supply. All cap dependent. I do not believe that 1968 law can be implemented as it says. In fact, I would argue, I'm not sure how much more you can go in that cutting cap. I know that's probably not a particularly fun thing to say in California or, or, or lovely to hear, but I'm just not certain that you can cut cap to zero. Um, so climate change is already impacting this basin. The impacts are gonna get worse. New normal is the wrong word. Maybe new abnormal is a better one. We got aridification underway. It's going to get hotter. We're seeing shifting runoff patterns, more year-to-year -year variability in the weather. The flow redu reduction risk is really high. You all get the experience. I argue this state action in the climate change spheres get, gets the worst of everything. You get floods. You get sea level rise you get higher temperatures, and you get drought. I mean, there's almost nowhere else in the world that has all four of those coming at you. Um, thankfully, in the Colorado River Basin, we don't think the flood risk is that big, with the exception of some locally intense, short-lived events. 
less so, you know, thinking of the main stem river flooding in the way, for example, you saw uh, a couple of years ago in, within this state. And to be optimistic, I like to say there's an opportunity for change here. Um, so I've worked on this issue now for 16 years. I've been an author of two national climate assessments, one international assessment. With each passing year, this threat grows. Water has been and is going to continue to be a challenge because you warm the earth, you change the water cycle. It's as clear as that. Climate scientists have known this even before we had models. Water cycle, actually, it moves heat around. That's what it's doing. It moves heat around the planet. You add heat, water cycle is going to change. And so the last six months, this debate has changed in this country. And nary a week goes by without some kind of extreme climate event or some kind of brand new scientific finding that's almost always disturbing or something interesting on the political front. Um, the last political front was just last month when four, four Nobel laureates and a bunch of Federal Reserve Board chairs and other had a Wall Street Journal op-ed wanting a carbon fee and dividend program. Um, uh, two weeks ago, Brad Little, the new Republican governor of, of Idaho, stood up to a fairly conservative gathering and said climate change is real and we need to deal with it. I like to say we've got the tools. We know what we need to do. We're just not using them. Um, this image is a paradise. Almost 20,000 buildings destroyed, as I mentioned. So final slide. Is the Colorado in crisis? I don't really like that word because it partially implies out of control and uh, something that I was responsible for. And, but that's not really part of the definition. And if you truly acknowledge the facts, the reservoirs are low at 40%, that 40 million people depend on this system, and it's important in this state, it's the worst hydrogenic gauge record, climate change impacting these flows, and I'll, and I'll say to lose the ag and Imperial and Yuma and Central Arizona, that's really important ag in the concept of winter vegetables and produce in this country. It would be really hard on those economic areas. So my answer, yeah, of course it's in crisis. So with that, I'm going to end, and thank you for your time. All right, uh, that was Mark Udall, and uh, pretty interesting conversation with him. And uh, uh, we have some others uh, that we're going to play in the next coming weeks from uh, a lady named Glenda Humiston, Humiston, and uh, she was on one of our previous shows, and. Uh, she actually worked for the two past administrations in the government. So she's uh, a lady of the know. Um, as we all know, today is wonderful Valentine's Day. And some people are saying, why am I here? I should be with my wife at dinner. But, you know, I thought about that. And I talked to her. I said, what do you want me to do? Do you want us to play an old show or should we do it remotely and we go to dinner? And she says, no, it's going to be too crowded. Last year we went, just just put the things in the frame. And uh, I was talking to uh, Chris Davey about it this morning. You know, we went to Roy's last year. We like Roy's uh, restaurant. It's pretty nice. Uh, they only had four selections of what you can have for your main course. But by the time you went there and you sat down, it took three hours to have the meal. And what I didn't understand is if you're only making four things for your main courses, why does it take 
up to three hours to serve everybody that's there. It just didn't make sense. It's not like they're they're cooking one of you know fifty fifty of their different configurations for dinner every single night. So anyway, we wanted to wish everybody a a really good uh, Valentine's Day. And uh, uh, it's raining here today. I think it's still raining outside. Got a long ride home. Um, there's some upcoming things uh, in uh, in uh, April. Uh, we do a, a, a partnership with the Wyland Foundation. We'll be doing the Wyland National Mayor's Challenge for water conservation. And that's a, a thing where anybody can go online, www.wylandfoundation.com, and you take a pledge, and the pledge is no money. It's, a, it's just a voice pledge. And you say that you're going to save water by uh, maybe turning the water off when you uh, brush your teeth. Uh, you're not going to take a 45-minute shower. Uh, you're not going to wash your car, leave the hose running down, you know, the water running down the street. And the idea behind that is we, we collect, uh, uh, Wyland collects all the, the pledges online. And then the cities that have the most people who cast their pledge get a chance to win some prizes. Plus the individuals who sign up for this also get to do that. And they, they win, win lots and lots of different prizes. There's cash prizes. There's uh, real prizes. Um, the winning city, and it goes in five different categories from depending on the amount of people. Uh, the good thing about that is uh, last year we gave away a Prius, uh, a $40,000 Prius to a city in New Mexico, and uh, they, it went to a charity. And they were very happy about that. Also coming up in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about a program called Extreme Water Makeover that we're going to do with Metropolitan Water District of Orange County and all their water agencies that they supply water to. And we're going to do a couple a year, but we're starting off with them. Uh, we're also going to team up with uh, NBC uh, weather person uh, Fritz Coleman. And we're going to promote it over that. The idea is we're going to ask people to send a picture of their front yard and write a 300 word, up to 300 words, telling us why you need a water water efficiency makeover for your property. And then we'll pick the winners. They get a brand new irrigation system. Not only do they, they get that, they get some audits so people can come in and tell you what, what's the bad things about your house and wasting water. Um, I've set a deal with uh, Howard's Appliances, which is one of the, is the biggest independent appliance store in, uh, in California. And uh, they're going to give away a dishwasher, a washer and dryer, uh, some fixtures uh, for your showers and things of that sort. So whoever wins this thing is going to get lots and lots of prizes. They'll probably get, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe $10,000, $15,000 worth of stuff. Plus, that's just hard hard stuff, not counting the labor and things. Uh, they won't have to pay for anything to do the installations and that. So that's going to be coming up uh, probably at the end of April. We'll start announcing that uh, in a couple weeks and make that as we get that finalized and all officially with the lawyers who have to say, yes, this is good or no, it's not good. We do that. Uh, also down the road, I'll be doing a, uh, I'll be visiting with my friend Rick Springfield, at the Orange County Fair. I will uh, try to get him on uh, on tape, uh, actually digital tape, or I will get him live to uh, talk on the phone before his concert coming up. And that should be good. I did that uh, last year. I didn't get him on, but we got videos of that. So I'll stop my rambling because I got to get out of here and get uh, something for my wife. I know I'm just like every other guy or not every guy, but the guys who just wait till the last minute. That's me. Anyway, uh, you people have a great, great week. Careful when you go out there driving in California right now because it's really wet and raining hard. And remember the most important thing you got to do, think blue. Good night, everybody. <laughs>